Hey everyone, Jerry here. And before we get started on episode 70 today here on August 25th, I wanted to share a quick message with you about the 2020 census. Uh, the census is our American way of counting everyone living in the United States and it determines how resources are allocated. So it's a really important thing that we should do. So what gets decided by data from the census? The government uses it to decide funding for schools, roads, public services, and healthcare. And in fact, businesses, uh, they'll use this data too to decide if they should open up stores or even close stores in the neighborhood. So it actually impacts every part of our life. And so this week is a pretty special week. The Aries Americans is an official partner of the 2020 census, and we're participating in the Asian Week of Action and wanted to share this message out with you. If you haven't yet, please take a moment to go to 2020census.gov, fill out yours, um, encourage your family and friends to do so. It takes about four minutes, under 10 minutes tops, and they're going to ask you who lived in your home as of April 1st of this year. And so for a few minutes, we can really make a decade of impact. And so we really encourage you to do the same. And because it's only done every 10 years, and this being 2020, we won't actually get a chance to do it for 10 years. So really important, please head over to 2020census.gov. We want to do this to obviously make our community's voice heard, not just the Asian American community, but where you live and where your families live. So Let's get counted. Let's shape our future together here and now and uh, participate in the census. And on Thursday, actually, uh, which is not a regular episode day for us, join us at 12 o'clock Pacific, at 3 o'clock Eastern for a live podcast recording that I'll be doing with my friends Minji from Collaboration, Dan Matthews from International Secret Agents, and Henry Han from TDW and Co. We're going to be live streaming on the Dear Asian Americans Facebook group and talk about why the census matters to us. And we'll have a meal, and we'll take your questions, and we'll have a lot of fun. That episode will air on Friday, but if you want to join us for the live version of it and get into the chat, follow us on Facebook and join us at noon on Thursday. This upcoming episode here is a pretty special one uh, that I had a chance to uh, talk with Kathleen Birkinshaw about her book and about her experiences. And so without further ado, here's my conversation with Kathleen Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Asian Americans, wherever you are and whenever you may be listening to us. We wish you all the health, safety, and happiness in the world. 2020 has been a very challenging year uh, for many of us, and it will be a time, I think, that we will look back years from now. And if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, or if you plan on being either of those, how are we going to share 2020 with them? What are we going to say? What memories will we keep with us. Um, compared to some other big events that have happened globally, it wasn't a singular moment in time in history where we can say, I knew I was, I knew where I was when something happened. But it will be a time where many of us will have a world flipped upside down and our norms will change and the way we view the world will change. And so I think it's been an interesting time for us to reflect and to think about not only how we've lived life, but how we want to remember this year uh, going forward. And so with that in mind, I'm really excited to share this conversation with author and speaker Kathleen Birkinshaw, whose book, The Last Cherry Blossom, first published in 2016 and coming to bookstores via paperback uh, right around the time we uh, aired this episode, talks about her mother's story around the topic and the timing of the Hiroshima atomic bomb in World War II. So we're going to get to talking about the book, her motivations for doing that. 
She's spoken at the United Nations. She enjoys speaking to students all over the country to share not just the story because we have to remember history so we don't report it, so we don't repeat it and understand it, but also care so much about sharing our story and to preserve it. So Kathleen, thank you so much for making time for us, uh, joining us all the way from North Carolina. Welcome to the show, Kathleen. Thank you for having me. <laughs> How are things in North Carolina? Not too bad. We had the earthquake on Sunday, but other than that, we're, we're doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, you know, um, it's been a funny thing to ask people during the last few months. How are you doing? Because it's like <laughs> the obvious answer is like, what do you think? Right. We're all just we're all home, trying, trying, to, yeah, try, trying to manage, trying to survive. Tell us a little bit about um, want to learn, obviously, about the book and your speaking and, and sort of why you're so passionate about um, the speaking on the topics that you do. And I think to help us really understand that, I think obviously uh, fundamentally important for us as an audience and your friends to understand how Kathleen came to be. So share with us a little bit about how your family became Asian American and share with us a little bit about the earlier years of Kathleen's life. Sure. Um, well, my mom came to the States in 1959. So she came from Japan. Uh, she met my dad in 1958. He was stationed uh, at an Air Force base near Tokyo. So she met him there and they married at the U.S. Embassy in Tokyo. And his, his time in 1959 ended in the Air Force, so they decided to go back to the States, and he moved to Rhode Island, which is where his family was at that time. So that brought her here then. And I came along 10 years later, so I was born in the States, and it was an interesting time because when my mom arrived in 1959, she thought it was, you know, 15, 14 years after the war ended. She didn't expect a lot of prejudice. But she received a lot and she still got a lot of racial slurs. And, and, you know, she was thinking, I lost that. You know, she lost so much in that war, too. And she figured I, I didn't expect it. And it came some of it from, you know, my dad's own family uh, that they had feelings about that. And, and it was really hard for her. So she stopped saying that she was from Hiroshima. She would just say Tokyo. She was determined to learn English. And five years, she became a citizen of the U.S., and so she figured by the time she had a child, she wanted to make everything, as she called it, Americanized, because she felt that was what she had to do. They even, her name is Toshiko, which I think is very pretty, but they said it was too difficult to pronounce and they called her Betty. So that kind of, you know, you see envelopes coming in. I thought her name was Betty for the longest time because that didn't dawn on you of what their name would be. So, uh, but because of that, when I was born, we were in an area where there weren't very many Asians at all, let alone any Japanese. And in my elementary school, we, I was, let's see, I was the first Asian for a few years. And then we got a few more, but they weren't Japanese either. And there still was so much prejudice and things that they would say. I looked very, very Asian as a child. And so they knew right away. And they would talk about my mom and they would say, you should go back to your own country. And I'd be like, I live in my country. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, those kind of things. And, and it hurt my mom. And, you know, she's just said, you know, I've tried to do everything I possibly can, you know, and then still. And the sad thing, though, is that she didn't have a lot of Japanese stuff in the house. We didn't you know, go over any traditions, except for the fact that she did cook some food and New Year's was a big deal, but she didn't do any traditional New Year's food, but we all had to be together. And so I really didn't have a lot of that. I didn't learn Japanese. I 
probably can count. I think I know 20 words, 10 are probably numbers, but you know, that's about all that I have. I can't read Japanese. Um, but she would sing Japanese lullabies. So I knew some of those, but that was about it. And it was very difficult to kind of feel, I think for her also to feel like you had your people. She just didn't have that. And, it, you know, she had said later years she wished she would have gone to California because she knew there were more Asians there and there were more Japanese. And, and she might have uh, had a little bit of a difference of how she'd hold on to her culture. So pretty much the biggest thing that happened in my childhood is being woken up with uh, my mother with a blood curdling scream. And I think the first time I remember that was five. And that was when she was having she would have nightmares a lot, but mostly in August about what she witnessed on August 6th from the atomic bombing. So that was very shocking to me. And I couldn't put together, I was too young to know why she might be doing it. And she got away with just saying, um, you know, it, everything is fine. But when I was 11, she had those nightmares and I was finally able to put together, it was August the year before. And so I pestered her and she finally told me that she was not from Tokyo, as she told me and everyone else. She was actually born in Hiroshima, but she lost her family, her home, her friends to the atomic bombing. And she said, I, I can't say anymore, it's too painful still, and don't tell anybody. So that was pretty much <laughs> a big secret, a big shock uh, to try to understand it. Uh, and. In high school, I finally learned more about it when we read Hiroshima by John Hersey, and that was like the first glimpse that I got. And I remember I was reading part of it in my room, and um, I was crying, and I came out to her, and I said, is, is this anything close to what you saw? And she didn't look at the book. She just said it was hell, and I can't talk about it. And it was just very hard uh, for that because I knew she must have seen something horrible, but she wasn't ready to talk about it. But you know, the scars were there for her, for me, because I would witness her post-traumatic stress. You know, I wouldn't know what exactly it was. They didn't call it that then, but I would see her depression. I would see her sitting in a darkened room in August and crying and, you know, you, you're not able to console her and you can't quite get it. And it was really, it was very, very hard. And, and I think that was probably the most Japanese stuff that we kind of spoke of and the rest of it, she just wanted to keep things, you know, uh, what she called Americanized. And when I went into school, like in high school, I liked doing theater. I acted in some plays. I liked writing. Um, I always liked to do poems when I was growing up. And I loved doing book reports and, and those kind of things. But my mom would say, well, that's nice, but you need to go to college for something business. <laughs> um, I did not have the math skills to be able to do anything in science or, or doctors, so she kind of went the business route with me. So I really feel that I lost out on a lot of knowing the culture until I got a little bit early. And I, I think that that kind of shaped me and how when it finally came time when I did write, um, that it would be about putting, learning more about the culture and being able to educate people more about the culture as I'm writing uh, through the book. So um, that's pretty much my childhood and uh, high school years, college. Um, I went in for healthcare administration, which is basically a business degree working um, in a healthcare setting. And so I didn't do much writing except for business writing at that point. And there was really no Asian clubs or like my daughter in college, she was able to have a Japan club. You know, they have all these things now and they didn't have that back then. And so, there were very few Asians that I could even picture on campus. So it, it was another time of not really doing 
anything with that for the culture. And I still tried to write on the side, but once you get out of college, you know, life happens, you go to work and those things kind of get pushed aside for a while. There's a lot first. Thank you for, for sharing that. I know it must have not been easy, obviously, for you to experience it personally, but also to hear your mother experience that and, and go through um, what really is PTSD, but also really the most unfortunate, I think, is to have to go through it without the support system that actually you need to make it as, I don't want to say easy, but more, I guess, a softer way to deal with it. Um, but here she was in a country that actually still viewed her as the enemy and demonized her. We see a lot of parallels to that now in 2020. Mm-hmm. And the name thing, man, um, my wife went through something similar when we, we lived in Michigan for a couple of years while I was going to graduate school. And they said, um, we're going to call you Kate. And I was like, well, and, you know, it, it's double-sided though, right? Because it does make them less racist if they see a name that they're familiar with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At the same time, it's a big F you. You should learn my name because it's my name. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, it's, it's a, it's not a binary decision. It is this big gray decision where it's like there are certain actual like safety and survival benefits yeah. to assimilating or at least making yourself less threatening to mm-hmm. certain groups of people. Uh, and it's not just Americans. There's mean, hateful people everywhere, but particularly mm-hmm. in our situation, it, it happens to be. And, and so like, it's, it's, I think 2020 has been, if not, if this is the first time you're experiencing it, it still sucks, but at least you've been lucky in the way that you've actually not had to either experience it yourself. It only takes two generations max for most Asian Americans to talk to somebody who shares your genes, to share really painful stories of war, decimation, murder, occupation, destitute, just, you know, poverty, coming over here as refugees, literally on boats, like two generations, ask your grandparents, that's it. And so why, why is that memory so short? I think a part of it is similar to you and the way that I think your mother tried to shield you from it because it's perhaps it's twofold. One, she didn't want to live through it again, but two, she's like, this was, it's enough that I deal with it. I don't want my daughter to know. Exactly. Exactly. But the really terrible side effect that is that most of us have no idea what our grandparents and parents went through. And so it is, you know, uh, again, not binary. You have to strike a balance that works for you and taking care of your own mental and emotional health primarily. But I think part of what we want to do in, in sharing these, some of these stories here on the show is to bridge those gaps that maybe some of our families don't want to bridge for us. Right. You know, uh, just a, a quick sidebar, but had a number of folks here on the show who are either children of or actual boat refugees. I had actually ever never heard the word harrowing used so often. But in that context, every single person used the word harrowing to describe the journey. And it's not an everyday word, but it's a very strong and emotional word. So, you know, I, I hope that we can, I mean, I had a hope that we would have moved that moved away from it by now, but 2020 has reminded us again that it isn't. 
but but there's one particular part of your mother's story that I think is fascinating that I want to do, you know, just sort of talk about a little bit more. It's just this, if I make myself not the most hated version of whatever you think I am, I hope to deflect some of the hate. And so the way that your mother did it was to say, I'm from Tokyo, not from Hiroshima. But for 99%, 99% of the people, 99.9% of people out there, they don't care, right? Like you're Japanese, like I don't, who cares, right? Like they probably can't even point to it on a map, right? And, and so we went through our own version of that this year where it was just really unfortunate. And at least I'm so grateful that more of us are more aware enough to call people out. Right, but right. if somebody went to, you know, and we've heard news stories of this, right? Like, oh, just tell them you're not Chinese. What does that solve, bro? Like, <laughs> exactly. you know what I mean? Like if somebody yells at me and he goes, China virus. And if my response is, dumbass, I'm Korean. Like, what does that solve? <laughs> it, it but at least, you know, so like, what's the point of that, right? Like, right. we need to solve the actual root of the racism problem in America. And mm -hmm. to say, and, you know, some dumbass has made t-shirts and like it went around on Facebook that says like, don't worry, I'm not Chinese. And I was oh like, gosh. What? <laughs> like, why? <laughs> why? why? Right, exactly. Like, what does that, what does that solve? Right? Like, because it's, you know, because what, what does that do? Like, it's going to anger that person more. And like, mm -hmm. who can, mm -hmm. what if you were Chinese? Then what? Then you're, then we're actually saying that you are the problem and yeah. that you deserve all the hate coming your way. So exactly. You know, the, the identity and I think what you spoke of it and, and man, it must have been so tough for your mom to just deal with it in silence and, and just without a support system and a community. Right. You're right. Come to California. Right. Like Little Tokyo was here back then. You yeah. know, Torrance still has very, you know, a very rich Japanese American community out here. Mm -hmm. But then for her to just wish for you to be accepted as an American. Code yeah. word accepted white girl in America, yeah. not viewed as Japanese. That's sad. And I don't mean to make light of it, but imagine the emotional and mental process for her to come to that conclusion that for you to live a quote unquote better life, that it was easier to live that life, having thrown away her culture that she literally was born into. Yes. And so I, you know, it's, I think it's amazing that people go through processes like that and um, we are getting, we're not, we're getting better. We're certainly not at a place where we're doing a great job, but at least allowing ourselves in the community and our families to talk about trauma, talk about right. mental health issues, right. to talk openly about, especially for the dudes out there, like <clears throat> just be vulnerable and say, we messed up on shit. Like who are you trying, like literally, you know, who are you mm -hmm. trying to impress, right? Like, it's okay to cry. It's okay to say you messed up. It's okay right. to say you're sorry. Yeah. We look at a lot of the things that we think are wrong with America today, and it's just those macho type of behaviors that people don't want to admit when they're wrong. People don't That's want so to admit true. that they don't know something. Exactly. And you keep doubling down on this me strong, you're not. Crap. Right. And so, so I know we went, we just talked slightly about college, but I, I want to go back a little bit earlier in your growing up with your mother. And you said she shared not a whole lot, but she shared enough for you to understand something about August, something about what she went through. And you read the book Hiroshima to sort of at least understand what it could have been. 
And so now we know we we now we know that you wrote a book about it. But in your early years, what kind of you know documentation or writing did you do to sort of try to help understand or at least make sense and process what you were hearing and what you were not hearing from your mom? Well, you know, it was she was so adamant on not talking about it. She would talk about her childhood before, you know, and she would tell me the stories of that, and, and she would just say how awful it was. And so part of me just felt that, you know, if she wanted to tell me, the time would come. And so I just tried not, I really didn't go after it that much because I just felt it would upset her if I did that. It was just kind of, um, cause I tried a couple of times when I read the book and I tried to bring up some things and, you know, I tried to ask her some specific questions and she didn't respond well to that. So I thought, all right, well, I don't want to hurt her. So if it looks like I'm trying to look for more, I'll do it once you know, I get older and I'll pay more attention to it then in a sense, because uh, I, I just felt she's been through enough. So if she doesn't want me to look into it. Then I'm just not going to. And back then, though, if we would have had the Internet, yes, I would. But, you know, in that time, if you're going to the library, a lot of the stuff that you would have had would have been one sided anyway. So it's not it's not like you would have <laughs> given you hope. Sure. So, and I think we know which side it would be. So, of course, I, it is. <laughs> um, so. That's why nothing was probably really done then. Um, but sometimes I wish I would have done a little bit more, but she did end up talking about it. And once we get to that piece of it, um, I am glad that we were finally able to to do that and to come to, to grips with it. And, you know, she, she was a very strong woman and she was very determined and stubborn. And it, so it was very funny in how sometimes to see her vulnerability, because you didn't see that very often. You didn't see her get emotional yeah. and cry. You know, she would, she'd be very loving, but she, you wouldn't really see the other piece of her. And I always found that very interesting, that she was determined to make it go. She would do it if she had to, even on her own. Um, you know, and she, she started working for a company that all they did was government contracts, and they worked on circuit boards that went in Apollo 11, which I always thought was kind of cool that when she came here, that's kind of yeah. something she chose to do. But um, she still spoke to the woman I knew as my grandmother um, once a month. Back then, long distance was very expensive to do those kinds right. of calling. So she'd get to speak Japanese then. And I remember I would listen to it and think it was so pretty. And I would try to ask her to teach me things. And she would just say, it, it's better that you, you know, you don't need it. So, And that's a shame. That's a very big shame. Uh, and when you're young, you, you yeah. don't think of those things, you know. You, you, you don't. And I, you know, a lot of us, regardless of when you came, I think the gap between first generation immigrant struggle and then second like we skipped a lot of steps yeah. we generally went from shit i gotta survive mm -hmm. to privilege in one generation which yeah. many other immigrant groups don't get to do and right. we can point to the attributions the attributes yeah. on on like why it is but when we do that it's also because our parents shield us from Right. from their decision yeah. to not share all the shit, yeah. which you sort of need to understand where you come from, to understand where you're going. Right. But I don't blame any of our parents for shielding it because why the hell would you put your parents or your kids through like, I don't know, like chosen trauma if you've spent your entire life trying to run away from it so right. much so that you came to a whole goddamn new country to try to start anew. But thankfully now, 
thanks to the internet, thanks to YouTube, thanks to podcasts, history isn't written in the voice of the victor and the one who wants to control the narrative. And yet, it's still so hard to get the truth out there. And it's okay for there to be multiple versions of truth as long as your truth is your own, right? And this is not... If you're listening and you're like, ah, fake news. No, that's not what I'm saying. No. <laughs> we can all experience the same thing and have different stories to right. tell. So why have we decided that a bunch of similarly minded, let's call it out for what it is, white folks in a room that approve textbooks, also written by people with an agenda, is yeah. the one version of history that we've all sort of been told. Exactly. We didn't learn about anything with foreign countries in any other way then it made sense for American kids to have undying and non-questioned patriotism towards the country, which is, which is sure. If you're the American government and you want your citizens to fight for you and to stand for you and all these things, you sort of have to do that and not, Oh yeah, we killed millions of people and we enslaved them and we bombed the crap out of other people that we're still keeping people in cages, right? Like, Mm-hmm. But those are facts. Yeah. But, um, you know, cognitive dissonance or like critical thinking is something that we, I don't mm. know, we, we, we have a challenge yeah. with in this country. Mm, and 2020 yeah. has reared, like just expose it all. And exactly. so I, I, I think it's amazing that you've chosen to honor your mother's story through your work and continue to share. I, I think... It was 1956, correct? What? Was the, the bombing. 45, 1945. 45, I'm sorry. Oh I, got, oh, I got my wars mixed up. So we're coming on, <laughs> we, we, are, we are coming on 75 years, right? Mm-hmm. And we've passed 75, just passed 75 years. Yeah. Meaning the last of the generation that actually remembers it is not going to be around for much pass longer. Away. Yeah. So, you know, similar to, and, and it's a similar vein, right? Holocaust survivors, oh, yeah. you know, the memorialization yeah. and the honor of their stories. And, and so then, then now the big question is like, how do we keep facts, facts, and how do we keep actual memoirs alive? And so I think for you to have done this at a time when those stories are dwindling and to capture what you know to be at least a version of it and to not only share with our generation for the people who weren't around and to be honest, you know, some of our grandparents and family might tell it a different way, depending on what country you're from and what political ideologies that you have. But I think it's wonderful that you wrote the book. Tell us first about the storyline of the book and then the process in which that became a reality for you. Sure. Uh, The storyline basically follows a 12-year-old girl uh, named Yuriko and her family life in Hiroshima. I started the book months before the bomb was dropped because it shows you more of the culture um, Mm -hmm. and the way her family lived. She has some issues that arise in her family with a second marriage. So she's going through a lot of the same similar things that you'd even go through today. Um, and, you know, she's a typical 12 year old. She really didn't like homework. She was messy. And, you know, how that interacted with the culture over there, the political mindset of the people there, how they looked at their leaders. I really wanted to give more of a, 
a rounded view because I wanted to show, okay, these are some of the differences, but then there's also similarities. So my, my goal was to show that the children in Japan, like my mom, they, they love their families, they love their friends, they, they wished for peace and they worry what could happen. And the allied children, you know, those were all the same things. And just really trying to give them an idea in the story of what Hiroshima was like at that point. It was once a heavy military port, but by that point it wasn't. Um, Japan had attacked um, and invaded Manchuria in 1931. My mom was born in 1932. So she only had war as a background. And that also means then by the time 1945 came, you know, the, the resources, the natural resources were not there. A lot of the, the young men mostly were out in the Pacific fighting. So you had elderly people and you had women and you had children that were mostly there. And I think I, I want to try to, that's what I wanted to focus it on because I really felt it would have more of an impact for them emotionally uh, so that they could kind of see it through her eyes of what she went through, of what she had, and then what she lost and how she was supposed to try to, you know, come through that way. Um, and I modeled a lot after my mom's life. The, the fiction pieces are, you know, the, the events that happen at a different, may have happened at a different time frame, but I had to put it in a certain time frame. Um, when I talk about August 6th and what she saw and what happened a little bit afterwards, that was all from her. Um, and uh, and I, I looked up some other survivors too, so I get well-rounded, but everything that goes that character goes through is what my mother went through on that day. Um, was there a singular moment in time when you decided I have to write this book? Yes, I was taking notes um, on what my mother was telling me and my daughter was in seventh grade and she had come home from school extremely upset and she said, you know, we just ended the subject World War II and there were some kids just talking about that cool mushroom cloud. Could you talk to them about who's under that? Like grandma, that's really what kind of started everything rolling. Um, because since I had never talked about it publicly, you know, I had to ask my mom. I didn't know if she would say yes. And, um, but she did say yes because she felt that all the kids in the class would be about her age. So maybe they'd relate to her a little bit better. And they're all going to be voters someday. So they could walk away knowing uh, nuclear weapons should not be used again. Um, so it was really from the start of I visited a lot of schools for the first couple of years, and then um, they started to ask about a book to go with the curriculum because they didn't have anything really on the Pacific of what mm. was happening during the war there from a viewpoint of 12 years old, which you can see a little bit more than you would as, as if you were eight or younger than that. So that's kind of how where it started. Um, and I remember thinking about doing the book and how I wanted to do it. And my mom, when I called her to tell her that I was going to be doing that, she said, why would anyone care about what happened to a 12-year-old girl in Hiroshima? I don't understand. And I said, but mom, they do care. You know, she spent so much time feeling that her voice didn't matter. You know, and it was just, for me, it was so important to show her that it matters. It matters. And it still matters. It matters then. It matters now. Um, and... So when, when I did that and she was, okay, well, she sent me something in the mail and it's a picture of her and her papa. And it's a very special picture. It was a copy of it because 
I didn't know she was from Hiroshima growing up, but I knew that she had a papa that she loved very much. And she only had six pictures from her childhood because they weren't damaged in the bombing. They were at another house. So all of her pictures were from the age of three to five. Uh, so she really treasured this particular one of her and her papa. And when I was looking at that, that's when I realized I'm not going to just write about the day itself. I want to write about the, the happy memories, that there were pieces to that and to show what it was like, that you're not going to get that kind of a view from two paragraphs in a mushroom cloud picture in a textbook from anything. Um, and I actually found out more what happened to my mom a few years prior to that. Uh, when I was 30, I was very, very sick and I was in the hospital for over a month. And when I came home, home, I couldn't take care of myself. My daughter was four then while my husband was working. So my parents came and she would still talk about her childhood and the funny stories and the happy stories. And then I got the diagnosis of reflex sympathetic dystrophy, which is a uh, neurological chronic pain progressive disease. And it's related to the um, radiation that my mother was exposed to when she Man. was there at the bombing. Um, and I knew it was going to get worse. It was already, I couldn't walk without assistance. And I knew that it would eventually affect other um, parts of me and my career that I worked hard for, I had to give up and I didn't know how can I take care of a four year old? Am I going to, um, and I got very depressed and very despondent. And my mother started to talk to me about August 6th. And, um, you know, she, at the end of telling me things, she then said, I'm telling you this, because I want you to know that I was planning to kill myself. I stood on a bridge a year after because everybody and everything I loved was gone. And she said, but I heard my papa in my head, how he used to tell stories of our samurai ancestors and the pride and honor in our family. And she said, so I couldn't do it. I didn't want to disappoint him. And she said, if I, I'm so glad I didn't, because she said, I wouldn't have had you. I wouldn't have had your daughter. And You've got the same samurai blood running through you, so you have that strength too, and you can find your own way as well. I'm sorry, it's been an emotional no, this week. Is, it's <clears throat> I, I have nothing but gratitude, Kathleen, because I think you are extending that decision by having carried on her legacy. And it's not just hers, right? Um, it's pretty much for an entire country, which I think doesn't, you know, you, you mentioned when you started this and, um, you know, when, when, when your daughter was young, like there was no curriculum. There was nothing from yeah. your perspective. Right. Which is sort of comical. It had already been 70 years. 65, you know, 70 years. And, and it is, a lot of it is rooted in, um, I'll generalize here of, of Asian mindset of humility or shame or all these complex emotions together that says, like your mother said, like, why would anybody share this story? One, who's going to read it? And two, like, does it matter? Um, yeah. Our entire podcast is based on the simple idea that everybody's story matters. I know. I That's really what I like care. about it. <laughs> yeah, it's um, every story matters. And it's we, we have more in similar 
we have more in similarity than we do in differences. And I think yes. once we start to understand what people's backgrounds are, it brings us to what I would consider the most common of denominators as, as human beings to just approach each other with a little bit more kindness and with a little bit more humility and empathy. And you're right, whether you were raised here in America, going through the American education system, or whether you were educated in a different part of the world, did you really learn about the bombing? Or at least, let's not even get into the political part, but like stories of survivors. Probably not. Probably not. And so the real question is, why weren't you exposed to it? And, you know, it's not to like guilt people into saying like, oh, I, I should have done better. Like that's, you know, yeah. but let's think about the systemic things in place where the book's available, you know, that right. your parent, whatever, like teach it to you. Um, and in a parallel, it's funny because not to like tit for tat, but like there's a lot of amazing stories of, uh, you know, Holocaust survivors who that story gets continued to be told. And but we didn't do it, it to the Holocaust people. We didn't do the Holocaust from the U.S. Correct. <laughs> but we, of course, because then it brings out ugly memories. But right. it's also because I think the generations that followed made it their mission in life, as That's you true. have now, to not only capture, but make sure that nobody forgets, right? Yes. And, and And so, you know, it's obviously a little bit more complex when it comes to um, being a you know Asian American, a Japanese American, because the history is complex, the cultures are very different, and mm -hmm. there's not as many uh, Japanese Americans here, you know. And at the same time, I think for Americans in general to admit what they did to Japanese living in Hiroshima, then immediately they have to also admit and then accept what they did to Americans of Japanese descent through the concentration camps here. And so it, it does, we understand why nobody wants to talk about it. Um, but perhaps, you know, through a book like yours, that isn't, again, going back to sort of how your mother and, and my wife were asked to come up with, you know, easily pronounced white girl names to make it easy. Um, and as I mentioned, part of it is, uh, important to understand that it makes it makes the relationship a little bit softer, whether it's right or wrong. It's not the point. Writing a book that is fictionalized perhaps helps somebody who may not read an actual historic manuscript of what happened to say, okay, this is inspired by true events and inspired by actual people, but it's fictionalized. So I might be willing to uh, be open to it or I process it a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. um, writing letters and memoirs of actual people, very different than fictionalized versions. And as you said, you wrote to a 12 year old audience because they can see themselves in the character. And I, I can't, I'm just still trying to process like what it must've been for your mom at age 12 to go through it. And, you know, she met your father in her 20s. So, like, what, like, 
those 14 years, right? Like where, how, like it's, it's mind boggling. Just, you know, we, we think about the challenges that we're going through now. Right. Some people have a hard time going to the grocery store with masks. Dude, like people who are alive now went through actual nuclear bombs and had to deal with exactly. that. Um, so put on we the can damn stay mask. home. Yes, we, we can stay our ass home and wear a damn mask. Um, it all comes back to that. Do you know what your parents went through? So put on your damn mask. Exactly. And I, I hope. Uh, I don't know. You know, we, we mentioned we have really fun conversations, but deep conversations on our show. And so I hope if you're a regular listener that you you believe in science as much as we all do and <laughs> are not, you know, uh, listening to this while you're at the gym. Um, not yet, at least. Yeah, um, not yet. <laughs> maybe if you're listening to this next in 2021, please be at the gym. Please be in your cars. But for, for 2020, um, please don't be. Um, <laughs> Take me through your the transformation that you noticed yourself going through and the impact it had on the relationship with your mother as you were interviewing her and, and researching. And your daughter was involved too, I'd imagine. So it's a multi-three generation yes. um, reconnecting of stuff that we, very many of us never get to do. Um, tell me about that process, Kathleen. It was a very wonderful process. Um, as I started to take more notes and I needed more specific information from my mom, I um, would ask her questions after reading some research. And it was kind of hard to find stuff on Japanese daily life written in English in the libraries or online. So eBay actually had a lot of books that were weeded from libraries that actually were translated from Japanese into English that would talk about daily lives during the war. And then, um, so from that, I would then ask my mom and it was really tough when she would explain, um, August 6th, uh, she saw her papa die in front of her. And, um, when she would tell it, I'm sorry, cause every time I talk about her, read it, it's, it's, um, I hear her voice and I, and I hear, um, she would cry. And then she would cry, not just cry like I'm doing because I'm thinking of it. I mean, she it was like it was happening all over again. And she was that 12-year-old girl. And it was very painful to see. And I was so, I don't think I, you know, I just loved her so much for being willing to share that with me because she didn't share that with anybody else. And to do it for her granddaughter, you know, and I think that was part of the reason, too, is because it was her only grandchild. My daughter's name is Sarah. And if Sarah would have asked for something, you know, my mom would have given her the world if she could. So um, but to be able to share that with my daughter as well and to be that vulnerable and open um, from someone who didn't like to do that, you know, in in public, uh, uh, it, it definitely brought us closer. And she then came up. You know, she started telling me more things from her childhood that she hadn't told me before. And it just enriched me getting to know her. And, and you know, and I think if I never got sick, I may never have known any of that. I mean, how wild is that? Um, and it's not like I'm grateful I got what I got. But it's, it's in a way you can see another lining to it where she opened up to me where, she, you know, where we hear a lot of survivors don't talk about it. We hear a lot of children of, um, like me, second gen, uh, Havaksha, that they didn't talk about it much. 
And so for her to share as much as she did and then let me then share it with whoever would read the book, I thought that was so brave, you know? And um, she would always uh, talk about how strong and her papa was, you know? And, and I said, you're strong. I, you know, she never realized what she mm. was. And um, when I told her about the book contract, and I wanted to bring it over to her so she could see it. <laughs> she had a, a shelf area where she had honored her papa with a picture and everything. And she took the, the contract and she placed it in front of the picture, you know, and, and she said something in Japanese, which I think had something to do with your granddaughter. Um, you know, and she turned to me and she said, you know, I never understood why I survived when I lost everybody else. I didn't know why. Why would I still be alive? But she said, I finally know. I couldn't tell my story, but you could do it for me. And that's why. And I'm, you know, I'm so glad we shared that moment because she passed away a couple months after that. I'm sorry. No, it's, thank you. I think her bravery lives on in you and in Sarah because you've since then have really dedicated your life to writing the book and then have spent the last four years telling the story of the book and in actuality, your mother to anybody who would listen, but particularly to people who need to know young people who are growing up in this country that, and it's not again, uh, you know, any, anything to um, bring blame or, or shame on no. what we've done in the past, but it's to say, look, these are human beings too, man. It's a girl, it's a little girl who probably your age and then to get people to empathize with what would you have done? Um, right. Right. And, you know, when I talk to students, you know, people will say, well, it was 75 years ago. And I said, well, time goes past you and you can change technology. But the need to have that human connection through emotion yeah. is timeless. That doesn't go away. And if we can't relate to the humanity under those mushroom clouds, then we're just going to repeat the same deadly mistake again. And and that is my whole big it mission is to try to get that across with this particular story, but it doesn't, um, cause sometimes I'll get, uh, well, you know, the, the, they did Pearl Harbor and yes, and that was horrible. And they have their own story to tell, which is valid and they should tell it, but that does not negate what my mother went through, you know? And, and I think they can't say this or that it's, that's not how it works. And I'm sorry, I just get very passionate about this because no, this just... is literal bullshit. What aboutism that we're dealing with right now? Yes. Right, like yes. your pain does not take away from my pain. Let's accept both. We can do both, people. Right, they it's coexist. Binary. They can mm -hmm. coexist, and that's to me. Until we see that, you can't really have that bridge to peace until you <laughs> get that. You know, yeah. and and I'm one of the things that really gets me is saying, and they dropped the two atomic bombs, and we won the war, and the war ended. I'm like, 
no, that's not what should be said. I mean, it doesn't even matter anymore if it did end the war because there are so many things that have come out that there were other factions that caused the Japanese to surrender. But that doesn't even matter now. To me, it's, okay, we dropped the bomb and we killed hundreds of thousands of innocent people. What are we going to do so we don't do it again so that your family doesn't have to deal with it? My family, again, doesn't have to deal with it. That should be more of what should be at the end of that sentence in a textbook. Sure. Because you just totally dehumanize everyone who was under that those two bombs by just saying that. I agree. I think we have a very difficult time seeing events pragmatically, objectively. Mm-hmm. Do you know how much money we spent and how many people we killed after 9-11? Oh, and God. Again, both can coexist, but if you want to belittle or devalue the experiences of something like Hiroshima. And that wasn't the only one. There have been other atrocities where we've inflicted massive amount of casualties. But, you know, after 9-11, 3,000 lives, what was our reaction? Exactly. Like, we took over countries, like actual, and we're still there 19 years after the fact, right? So, again, this is not, this is not a oppression Olympics. This is also not a pissing contest of no. who suffered more. No. This is just to accept, yo, I went through some stuff and I want to tell, share about it, right? And I think it's, you know, on, on the broadest level, having to flex our empathy muscles to understand that one person's story, like even just to, you know, just it's, it's mind-blowing. Um, this should be made into a movie. Like, how does a girl at age 12, after losing literally everyone in her life, survive on her own until she finds somebody to marry at 26? Like, those 14 years should be a movie, right? Like, because that's remarkable. And then the end result isn't actually written still because your book, though it was published in hardback four years ago, has done well enough to come back and have a rebirth as a paperback coming out here this month. And it's crazy. It's wild. And lucky for us, August 25th is on a Tuesday. So you should be listening to this on August 25th and go, 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 go go buy the book. Um, don't buy it from Amazon. Um, go to <laughs> Kathleen's Instagram page or we'll have a link in the show notes um, for you to buy this book from a place where um, they'll pay her more than Amazon. <laughs> for, lack of, <laughs> for lack of a better explanation. So t- tell us about the last four years from a author's perspective. You visited, you have visited schools. You've spoke at the United Nations. You've been featured across both American and Japanese publications for the great work that you've done to memorialize the experiences of a very specific time in history um, where there's not a lot of enough stories. Um, And you really, though you were telling your mother's story, it's pretty much, you know, based on firsthand accounts. What was, you know, what, what are, what what are some of the emotions and, and things that you, that went through you when 
you know, you got to share this story live and in person to groups like the United Nations and elementary schools and junior high schools across the country. If I start with the uh, elementary and junior high schools, and I, I've done high school too, um, but they're, the compassion that are in those students and they're, the way that they would come up when I'm finished speaking and they'll say, I had no idea it would be like that. And, or I didn't know that, that, you know, kids over there would do X, Y, and Z, you know, or whatever. And they would just be like, so they were just sort of like us. And I'm like, yeah, you know, and, and for them to then think of that and they come away, I've had some students that somebody had um, emailed me and she was saying uh, a couple years ago when we were having these issues uh, with North Korea. And she said, you know, I heard some kids just saying we should just nuke them and I stopped them. And I told them, it's not that simple. This is what can happen. And I, I just, my heart, you know, um, to know that something that they read and something I said, you know, and what happened to my mom would touch them. And they'd remember that, you know, from my mom saying, what are they going to care about if a little girl in Hiroshima and, you know, her voice wouldn't matter. And, and the way that it affects people. There was another time when I was signing books um, at a school and I asked the girl her name and she said, well, it's Kate now, but it was Katerina. And I said, oh, and she said, but I can't use that name anymore. My mom told me I can't. And I said, oh, okay. And she said, um, I could really relate to your mom losing her papa. And I said, oh, did you lose somebody recently? And um, she was from one of the Eastern Bloc countries. And she said, I lost many, many people in my family, but Yuriko, your character, your mom, you know, she was able to find some way to push through a little and hope. So she said, I have hope. And I was just, again, just, oh, you know, um, I've heard you say it before on your show. And, and if one person, just one person feels it in their heart and wants to take that with them and let it just sit there and grow for the rest of their life as they get into adulthood, I mean, that could just do so many wonderful things. Not just my story, but I mean, if just something would, would grab them, um, that would mean so much. And the, the other piece of it is I actually visited students um, in Tennessee at uh, Oak Ridge. Now, Oak Ridge is one of the Project Manhattan Project places. It actually had the plant that did the um, enriching the uranium for the exact bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. And I was nominated for award in the state, and then they invited me to speak with students. And at first, I was kind of like, oh, this is going to be interesting. How am I... But then I realized, you know, the book and what I talk about is not a political and it's not through the lens of a white American. It's not through the lens of just the Japanese. It's a white. It's through the lens of a 12 year old girl. And this is what happened to her family. This is what they saw. And my big thing, as we talked a little bit earlier, was that what they're you know, some of them had grandparents that worked there. What they did for their patriotic duty to win the war, that's very respectable. I have a lot of respect for doing that. They didn't know, you know, what was going to happen over there. And their stories should be told just as my mother's story matters. And they can both be there. And it was, they were so accepting and they were so wonderful with, you know, they, they could see it. They could see that they were people, you know, and it wasn't just the enemy. And, um, and Oak Ridge has done a lot to then bridge between Japan and them. And it was lovely to see what they've done as a, as a city with Japan. And um, they have this big friendship bell. And it, it's just wonderful how everyone can come together. Because even though you have war and you have anger, you can still find a way to find some kind of peace. 
So after doing that was when I got invited to go to the United Nations. And um, about seven months before is when they used, they put it down as an education resource for the United Nations Office of Disarmament Affairs. And I remember being so excited about that. That was just so cool. And um, then when they invited me to come, I couldn't believe it, you know, that I was invited to go there. I'd be talking about my mom. I'd be talking about my book. I'd be signing my book at the bookshop at the United Nations afterwards. It was just, it was so magical and surreal at the same time that I could honor her somewhere like that, where people from various countries were there. There was also a lot of um, high school teachers that came because they wanted to add nuclear disarmament to their curriculum. So they wanted to hear this. They were so compassionate. And I also got to talk and present with Nobel Peace Prize winners from 2017 that were there as part of the commission against to abolish nuclear weapons for their treaty that they passed in 2017. So it was just, you know, I hope my mom, I'm pretty sure she was smiling, looking down and seeing all of that and, and what has come from, you know, her story telling me to then a small book then to people who can feel something out of it and to know that you're helping somebody to feel something in their heart. Gosh, you know, it's, a, I don't know, you know, you don't make a lot of money being a first time author, but man, that kind of payment to me of, you know, being your heart filled. It's just, um, especially when it honors someone that you love and what they went through, you know, it just, it makes me very, very happy. Very, very happy. <laughs> I know how you, you don't make a lot of money, making a podcast either. So <laughs> that's right. Way, you but, know, <laughs> but it's hopefully, you know, it's just like anything, right? Do it for 20 years and then it'll be successful. And then people will wonder how'd you do it overnight? Um, there you go. <laughs> yes. But you know, it is really when you create something, whether it's writing a book or speaking into a microphone or making a video, it's so easy in both of our industries where numbers rule right? Your publisher will judge your popularity based on oh, the numbers yeah. of books sold. It's sure commerce is necessary, but what you can't put on a Excel spreadsheet is the number of times somebody cried reading your book. The number of times reading your book caused somebody to pick up the phone and to call their own mother or just to reflect on what it means to share stories and to inspire them to do something different about their lives. You can't count that. If you, there's no way you can count that. Right. right. Sure. You, you've gotten notes, you've gotten, you know, you, you shared stories of, of children walking up to you and, you know, having that moment and, you know, that's what makes it worthwhile. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we, we always joke like, you know, sure. They don't, they don't pay bills, but you know what? It fills the heart and yes, it, it inspires us to continue to do what we do so that, one day we will actually, because of that moment, we'll actually end up doing something that will reward us to be able to continue to do what we do, I think, which is the cycle that obviously we creators want to be in. But I think more so than the content of your book, Kathleen, the context of you writing the book, obviously as the daughter of the inspirational character, but also as a Japanese-American woman living in the United States, that's important. You know, I know we, we have a mutual friend in Sarah Park Dolan, who is a deep, deep, deep advocate for diverse literature. What have you learned or what is important? Or I guess not even what have you learned? Um, how cool is it 
to go to a bookstore and see your own book <laughs> when you know, you know more than most people that when you go into a Barnes and Noble or when you browse any bookstore, that 90 some odd percent of the books written aren't by people that look like me and you, but yes. there you are. And, and you're making a difference because again, it's not this, yes, the story, I'm not taking anything away from the story, but in mm. addition to the story, the Japanese American woman's book is on a bookshelf in America. That's cool. Yes. It's very, very exciting with a totally American name because my mother didn't pick anything Japanese, so you wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> Kathleen Why is this woman writing about Japan? Why? <laughs> <laughs> but it's not. It's you, right? And writing a mom story, right? Yes. And, and so it is wonderful because, you know, in, in most books, let alone historical fiction, you don't see, you never, in my time anyway, you didn't see Asian people. Any mm-hmm. age. <laughs> um, and to finally see someone, I remember Cynthia, Cynthia Kadohara was my very first book that I read, Weed Flower, that had a Japanese American girl in there. I was just like, oh. And it was about the internment. But I just remember thinking, you can have a main character be Japanese American. You know, people would read those stories, even, you know, and, and that's kind of what spurned on me as I got older is, is to realize that, you know, I can put something out there that would have our culture on it or um, to be able to talk to Japanese American kids to, to talk about, you know, how, how I grew up, what I didn't, what I didn't have in the culture, but how you can gain so much more from your culture even later, you know, which is basically what I did. Once I had my daughter, I tried to learn more um, and that you can embrace it. And to see, know that my book will be there is, is just, it is, it's a very, very cool feeling. And it's hard to describe it. It's just, uh, <laughs> It, it just makes you, it makes me giddy, I guess you could say. But I, I think it's it's that, right? Like, I, I think it this goes back to permissioning. This goes back to the shoulds of yeah. what we, as, as children of immigrants, were allowed to dream to be. Yeah. And a lot of our parents told us to go do things that were obviously academically challenging yet, but also very financially rewarding. Was again, going back to the survival thing, it was necessary. But I don't know, like writing a book, like that's cool. Like, you know, I'm, I'm sure growing up where you did studying healthcare administration, like writing a book, particularly such a meaningful book about your own family's history and to preserve it isn't something that I imagined that you dreamt up to be and you don't and and you bring up a good point you know you 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 share this uh uh, infographic on your own instagram a little more than a year ago which i've seen floating around and it's this scale of like what percentage of children's books reflect certain types of characters and it may not surprise anybody that white children are the overwhelming majority of books but everybody else we're actually below animals. And yeah, isn't that sad? It's crazy. <laughs> Look, I, I have a three and a one-year-old, right? I oh. read books all the time. And most kids will fall in love with talking cars, planes, <laughs> trucks, tigers, made-up characters that don't even exist in real life many times before they actually see a cartoon or a book with kids that actually look like them. Yeah. And if you don't think that has a subconscious psychological impact on our children of what they tie and associate with 
heroes and successful people and happiness. True. You got to wake up because it does. Yeah. And it's not to say like we grew up with notebooks with Asian kids and we turned out fine. Did we though? I don't know. What could we have been? I don't know. Right. And so, and again, there's a deeper level even to that, which is you have to have our kids read books where the heroes are all colors and all religions and all genders. Because if all I do is show my kid books with cool ass Asian kids, right, and he's going to become an Asian supremacist, where it's like, wait a minute, you can't be that, right? Like, and and we're living in America now, where like we're seeing the impacts of people siloing education and and siloing information, right? So, and and to the parents out there, I discovered this, I don't know, feature on Netflix a few weeks ago. You can turn most of the cartoons into different languages, so. Cool. Yeah, so I had to deal with my my kid. You know, he loves watching certain cartoons, and I said, "Yeah, you can watch it if you watch it in Korean." Ah. And and then so you know, Good. him and I like go back and forth on it. But it's one of those little things that I think we can do yeah. that I think can instill a little bit of the culture and the language and the things. Oh yeah. And and so, I, I think you know, well, sort of, this is where I wanted to get to. Right, like we have to support you in your book because. <laughs> If you believe that representation matters, and if you believe that context of books and storytelling matters much more, and even addition to the content, and if you're complaining about why aren't there more books, but yet you're not participating in the system in which Kathleen can only write more books if a publisher believes in her enough to give her the second contract, which is based upon the sales of the first book... Like yeah. we have to play the game and until we can fix the game, until we can create our own platforms to, you know, uh, publish ourselves, you know, that's hard, but we have to sometimes play the games within the confines of the existing structures. You know, if, if your books hit some list that gives you the credibility and the marketing, you know, right. tools to go. And, and so this is not, let's get Kathleen rich. This is what can come of the next book and how many other people, people will be inspired by reading your book, because this is not, there's no end game here, right? The pie is supposed to grow forever and forever in, in perpetuity. And it starts with little things and not all Asian American written or Asian author books are good. There's some bad ones out there. There are some stereotype perpetuating stuff out there. But for the most part, make your decisions based on the recommendations of the people that you trust to go and, you know, help, help each other out. Yeah. And, you know, children's books, I think, are far more important, to be completely honest, than the, the relative impact that a children's book can have on a young person's mind, which then will help them shape the rest of their experience, is, I think, slightly more important and impactful than some of these some of the more adult life memoir types that appeal to adults. Yeah. While those are super cool, right? Mm-hmm. We've had them on our show. Fuke Trans book. Holy moly. Actual oh, right, Audible's. Right. Yeah. Actual Audible's Instagram account put him on their account yesterday. Like that was cool, right? Wow. Yeah. Like I got him before Audible got him. That was that like, so you cool. know, <laughs> and I was joking with him, right? But it's just, <laughs> and you know, um, so Pandev wrote about reconnecting with his parents through mistranslations. And we got to hit him, you know, we, we have to have all the books, right? We have to have books for adults, books for children, yeah. because what the books for adults actually do, as it did for me, is to inspire me. Okay, if I'm reading these books, how can I get books that are similar and meant for my kids? 
so that sure. they don't have to. While these like I found myself later in life books are really great. How do we get to a point where we don't have to write those books? Right. Like <laughs> how, how do we write, you know, how do we build healthy relationships with our parents or multicultural and multigenerational issues so that, sure. you know, at some point, nobody has to write a book about how I reconnected with my parents in my thirties, Yeah, you know? Yeah. And then, so what can we do to instill confidence? And Sarah uses a, a great term and I know it's through an organization that she belongs, which is mirrors and windows, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Um, how do you see yourself, but then see out to the world that's possible. Exactly. And books, I think are a wonderful way to do it. Again, you should be listening to this on 825. And if you're not so busy on the day your book drops, we should also be having an Instagram live. We're going to probably give away a bunch of your books. It's fun. I like that. We're just here to grow the pie, right? And, And I know that because of the letters that we get and because of the notes that we get that each one of our shows impacts somebody out there in a way that they didn't expect to. And I know that your story has count me as the first person who has been deeply impacted and and inspired by your story. And then before we wrap up the show, because I I will give you for for a lot of Koreans out there here, here's the context. Our grandparents grew up in an occupied Korea that was occupied by Japanese. I was raised to not like Japanese people. Sure. Sure. Because from the context of my parents, they were the bad guys. Of course. Of course. Happened to date a fourth generation Japanese American woman in college, and my parents and my family were sort of like, I oh, hope it's no. not that serious. You know? Well, they didn't say no, but it was like, you know. This is going to be tough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I was like, what does she have to do with anything? You know? Right. <laughs> but those are realities and facts yeah. of the things that have happened. And even in 2020, you know, there's still complex situations. Oh, yeah with the island between the two countries, with certain right. governments' acceptance of what happened with comfort exactly. women. And exactly. because it's all a game of politics, yeah. but who gets thrown by the wayside are the human beings whose stories exactly. should still matter, right? So exactly. I, that's, you know, I've struggled with that a lot because when you're a kid, you just believe what your parents tell you to, exactly. right? Exactly. So, you don't know any, anything else, so you just go correct. with that. And, and so, you know, Hate is taught. You sometimes you have to unlearn it yes. um, for us to move forward. And and so I am so grateful that you made time to first explore the history of your own family and your mother. Two, then to write it. And three, obviously, to come and, and share a little bit of that with us here. And if you're out there and maybe you are the granddaughter of somebody who lived with, who lived through Hiroshima or something else equally as harrowing and devastating. Before it's too late, maybe ask him about it. Yeah. I know that many of us don't share the same language proficiency in our native tongues and they may not do in English, but even your parents, um, because they're hiding a lot of stuff from us. Exactly. A lot. From their perspective, out of love and out of safety. Right. But if you want to know, ask. If you're a young person, 
you've probably been stuck at home with your parents for the last five months. You've probably had your ups and downs if you're in high school or in college of oh, yeah. <laughs> crap school's closed. I can't even leave for school. Make the best of it. And if you're a parent out there, maybe this is a time that you put your ego aside, you put your own decisions aside and say, hey, there's a story that I want to share with you because that story and that experience is in your DNA. And if we don't share it, if we don't memorialize it, it may be forgotten and no story should ever be forgotten. Exactly. So Kathleen, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. And to close out the show, uh, we, we close out the show with a Dear Americans letter. It is a letter to us and from us, yet ultimately for us to help us make sense of the world, to help us make sense of our own experiences and our own identity, to perhaps inspire a much younger version of Kathleen to look at life a little bit differently based on what you've lived through and what you've learned until now. So if you'd please help us close out the show and complete the letter, Dear Asian Americans. You can still embrace your Asian culture and hear the stories of your family. And that does not make you any less American. Do both coexist. Mm -hmm. The world isn't binary. No, not at all. Not at all. Elections are binary. You should vote. But Def definitely vote. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Somebody yeah, vote. We're, just, we're just coming off of yesterday's big news of uh, Kamala yeah. Harris, our yes. uh, in, Indian sister, uh, Indian American sister being awesome. potentially our next vice president. So say what you will, at least for now, about her past and some of her decisions. But, you know. Who's sitting in that office? Who's the Kathleen Birkinshaw story happened because certain leaders were in the White House, because certain leaders were in the Senate, and they decided that certain lives were not as valuable as others. And so to wrap it all up, it is so important that we put the people that we entrust with yes. humanity, with kindness, with empathy, so that while we are so grateful that this book was written, it is our hope that a book like this has never, has never have to be written again. Exactly. And so last cherry blossom, wherever you can, you should be able to get it on Kathleen's personal bookstore by now. So we set that up. The link to that will be in the show notes or in the Facebook notes or wherever you find it. And if you're listening to this in the morning, on the morning of August 25th, we'll figure out a time, check us out on Instagram. Cool. Uh, we'll do an Instagram live, catch up with Kathleen on how book sales and things have been going. It will have been about two weeks since we recorded this. And uh, we'll give away a bunch of copies of the books and get you your questions answered about cool. any and everything. So that'd be so fun. It'll be fun. Yeah. yeah. Thanks again so much for writing the book. Uh, thanks again oh. so much for coming on the show and for letting me and all of us into your life a little bit and also to remind us yet again that there's so many stories right now that people are bottling up and once you share it, it does change lives. So thanks again. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you very much for all you do. If I would have had podcasts like yours, I would have embraced my culture much, much sooner.
it's a little bit of a selfish effort. I'm doing something that I wish I had earlier. So, and this is for my kids. So hi kids. Exactly. Exactly. It's dad in 2020. I don't know when you're going to be able to listen to this, but all right. <laughs> see you next time. Bye Kathleen. <laughs> Bye. I want to thank Kathleen again for joining us on the show. What a story and what a conversation. And I just want to encourage everybody out there, if you haven't had a chance to talk to your parents um, about learning their story, what happened to them, and um, finding out what legacies that we want to leave for our children, um, I encourage you to do the same, just like Kathleen did, and um, enough to write a book about and, and share the story with the rest of the world. Again, the book uh, is available now on paperback. We'll do an event on our Instagram at some point today or this week uh, with the author Kathleen uh, to share the messages about the book out there with you. And um, I really encourage you to take a read at it. If you found this story as inspiring as I did, I encourage you to take a moment to share it out with your friends, either via social media or just send them an email or a text. And if you are going to share it on social media, uh, please tag us at the Asian Americans on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And on Twitter, you can just find us at Dear Asian Am. And if you want to share a message with us, just uh, shoot us over a DM on Instagram or shoot me an email, hello at DearAsianAmericans.com. Another final reminder to fill out the census. Also, we are a part of the Asian Podcast Network, and we launched the Asian Podcast Network podcast this week. And you'll get a chance to hear from some amazing uh, podcasts from around the world in short 10 to 15 minute discovery episodes where you learn their story and their shows and uh, encouraging you to tune in. This week, uh, we are launching with five shows with podcasters from LA all the way to Australia. So please uh, take a moment to search Asian Podcast Network. We'll link it in the show notes as well. Wherever you are, whenever you may be listening to this, I uh, wish you all the health, safety, and happiness in the world. Join us on Thursday for the live podcast recording of the census episode at noon on our Facebook page. And until then, please be safe, please be healthy, please be happy. This has been your host, Jerry Wan, and I'll see you next time.